Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Body Protest. In this podcast, we combine storytelling with science to better understand how we think, feel and relate to our bodies. I'm Nadia Craddock and I'm a body image researcher. And I'm Honey Ross, writer and activist. This podcast is brought to you by The Pink Protest. Hello, Nadia. How are you doing? Oh, hi, Honey. Very well, thank you. <laughs> it's like quite a lot of pressure saying hello to each I, other. Like. I know, I know. I am. Um, feels very formal. How have you been? You know what? I've been good. It's got a bit colder, but it's sunny today. I'm sitting in my bedroom, and my in the winter, my bedroom is the best because it's the south facing, and you get the sun coming in, mm. so it has that illusion of warmth. I mean, I have to say, I'm so fucking happy it's autumn. I mean, I come alive. My house is full of pumpkins it's not it's like what the first second week of october my house is full of pumpkins oh my everything goodness. i i just i don't even think they're nice things mm-hmm. anything i see that's orange i buy even if it's not nice you do autumnal colors very well i said that earlier to you <laughs> in the day and then i do associate you with october and and of course halloween and i was thinking about this actually today also about this time last year kind of gearing up to going to your Halloween party which was so fun and you know I'm just so glad that we got to do that well that I got to do that last year um because obviously this year it's like so different that felt like introducing my family to my boyfriend I'm sorry <laughs> it really felt like introducing my family to my boyfriend I was like Nadia's coming uh, so everybody be cool everybody be cool <laughs> oh my goodness that's so funny what a um, night but yeah oh, it was it was great. I don't know what I'm going to do on Halloween. I'm probably going to be sat with my parents in costume, just like all of us in a kind of circle, crying, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Even for the Ross family, a bit intense. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's so funny. So let's switch to our episode. Today we have another one of my colleagues at the Centre for Appearance Research, who, as it happens, is another Australian um, our centre loves an Australian. Dr Emily Matheson is a senior research fellow at the centre and we work together on the Dove Self-Esteem Project Partnership, which is led by Professor Philippa Deirdrichs, who you would have heard from on episode two, to plug that back in. Emily is also a clinical psychologist with experience in working with people with eating disorders, so we asked her a lot about that. Emily is so sweet and easy to talk to and is great at explaining things, so really hope you get a lot from this episode. Obviously, we talk about eating disorders. It's the theme of the episode, so bear that in mind. Um, And of course, we could have spoken for so much longer and covered so much more. Eating disorders is such a huge topic. But I think we we hit a lot of boxes that we wanted to to cover. But I definitely think um, having this conversation with Emily, it was so enlightening for me. Uh, And I think, hopefully, you'll all find it very enlightening. But I think it's such a broad topic and so many different experiences come under eating disorders I think you know we're definitely going to talk about this a lot more um and hear you know maybe more anecdotal stories and as well as talking to more clinicians but um it was amazing it was a wonderful conversation 
yeah yeah she's she's super and the the one thing I was thinking about after we we had the conversation and it was something that you asked honey I think about why um anorexia there's so much focus on anorexia within the research field as well as more broadly and obviously as someone who's had anorexia I, I am conscious of that myself um and then how I kind of play into that as well and I think within the conversation we spoke about the medical lens that eating disorders are, are viewed through um which is really salient but we didn't and my kind of regret in that conversation is that we didn't stress enough um the impact of weight stigma or fat phobia or whatever term you want to use and I'm just very conscious of that with people who have eating disorders who are in a higher weight don't to not fit you know I want to make sure that they feel included in in everything we're discussing as well and it's something that I think about a lot within myself and how I talk about eating disorders and I think as you say it'll be great to 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 keep this conversation going um and and hear different perspectives I think we maybe talked about this on the episode with Stephanie, but, uh, you know, people in larger bodies are normally praised for their eating disorder and then actually, you know, they have their dis- their disordered uh, behaviours encouraged because, you know, people are happy to see someone in a larger body losing weight because of fat phobia in our society, whereas it's like, no, this person is massively suffering and, you know, like, it's definitely worth going back into and talking about again yeah completely and I think it's I mean it's very interesting it's very interesting also for me I am a member of the diversity equity and inclusion task force for the academy for eating disorders so the world's largest collective of eating disorder professionals and this conversation actually this idea of how we talk about weight stigma and eating disorders together is so tense um, and people are still figuring that out and how how we move forward together and, and have that unified front on it. So it's something that, that's, that comes up a lot. It's really important. And I think, yeah, just something for us to, to think about. Anyway, something to, to think about going into the future. But we really hope that you enjoy this episode. Emily is a gem and um, we cover a lot of ground. Emily, welcome to The Body Protest. I'm so delighted to have you on. Thank you for having me, guys. I'm happy to be here virtually. Virtually, yeah. We are all still very much virtual on good old Zoom. Um, Emily, I wonder if you could share a little bit about who you are. I obviously work with you, so I know, but um, share with our audience a little bit about you. Absolutely. I am a senior research fellow at the Centre for Appearance Research. So I work very closely with Nadia on all things Dove related. So I've been here in Bristol for the last two years, just celebrated my two-year anniversary. And in the Dove team, we look at developing and evaluating tools for young people. So looking to you know, help them with their body image which is slightly different to what I was doing back in Adelaide, South Australia. So I was at Flinders University finishing up my clinical PhD in eating disorders, which allowed me to work both within a research and therapy setting. So I'm predominantly in a research position now, uh, but have very strong roots in the clinical uh, realm and working one-on-one with clients through their eating disorder journey. And so I'm just so passionate to be able to speak about that topic with you guys today and, and really kind of delve into that a bit deeper. But yeah, it's been a really cool journey the last two years of 
you know, working research, but having the passion for clinical and, and kind of seeing how those two can, can work together. That's amazing. Um, no, it's amazing that you've kind of got that two pronged experience. You kind of can experience it from both sides. And that's, yeah, that's fascinating. I think there's some synergies, actually, because when Nadia you know, introduced the podcast topic of, you know, joining storytelling to the science, that's how sometimes I view therapy and research because, you know, someone's bringing in their story when they walk through that therapy room and then you're applying that story to a, an, a scientific framework for how to really help them with their eating disorder. So whilst there's, you know, universal similarities in, in how people experience an eating disorder, it's so important to understand that they are an individual themselves and, mm. you know, they are bringing their own experience, um, you know, with that, with that eating disorder alongside them. So I think it's, yeah, it's so important to add a kind of humanity behind the statistics and be aware of like, yeah, like you said, everybody's got an individual story and experience. And it's so important to kind of be like, these are trends in terms of like, uh, what we're seeing happen and patterns, but there is always an, an individual behind that. Absolutely. And it's it's hard sometimes to remember that when you are in the thick of research and and mm. that is an aspect that I really miss and, and recently have become a trustee uh, for an eating disorder charity and just going back to the, the roots of why we do the work we do and, and helping the people uh, at the heart of the research is really important to remember. Would you mind telling us why you got into this field of work? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's quite funny because it's one that I reflect on every now and again because, you know, you do naturally get asked that question of, you know, it is quite a niche job and, you know, how did you find yourself researching and, and wanting and especially eating disorders? Um it's quite funny listening to Philippa's podcast. She actually recalled a memory of doing a project in primary school on body image. And it was so funny because I related to that incident where it was in my year six health like health class and I did a project yeah. that looked at the differences between anorexia and bulimia. And I was wow. really fascinated in, I guess, body image and how people could develop a, a a difficult relationship with their bodies, but I was in year six, you know, I don't think I had the the yeah. insight of, oh, I'm going to continue doing this. Um, but there were definitely themes in my life where eating disorders cropped up. I had close friends who experienced it. I came from an athletic background where, you know, that's also a passion of mine, the intersection between body image, eating disorders and sport. And so, you know, I was always fascinated and would do my own reading about the topic and then came into undergraduate degree and followed the the passion of psychology. And that was then when I, you know, fell into the lap of Professor Tracy Wade at Flinders University, who is a leading expert in eating disorders. And I was hooked seeing her speak about the topic and the passion she had for creating a world where we and and particularly young women, but more so now we're seeing that eating disorders are across, you know, ages, genders, sexual identities, ethnicities, that people are being held back by their eating disorders and they aren't able to contribute to society. And I was just, I was hooked. I was so passionate about, you know, how we can ensure that people can move through life uh, with their strengths and not held back by, by this uh, disorder that, you know, 
is unfortunately the you know associated with the highest mortality rate of any uh any disorder and that was terrifying to me so you know if I could do any little bit uh to help the lives of those experiencing it I wanted to I wonder if we can move in and talk a little bit about some of the work that we do and the research and the science around body image and I wonder if you could talk about the link between body image and eating disorders yeah absolutely so when eating disorders are discussed you inevitably start talking about body image which you know people might refer to as body dissatisfaction weight and shape dissatisfaction and a lot of the research has focused on that and it you know there is a foregone conclusion that having body dissatisfaction puts you at greater risk of developing an eating disorder and you know that's really important to understand and but there are so many other risk factors uh, that render someone vulnerable to developing an eating disorder. And I like to think of them as categories of bio- biological, uh, psychological, and social. So body dissatisfaction would fall under the psychological banner. In terms of biological factors, there's been a lot of research in the last, I don't want to say five to 10 years around kind of our genetic makeup and how, you know, our genes can actually um, put us at, you know, greater risk of developing an eating disorder. And then when our genes interact with certain environments, for example, you know, peer teasing, when we combine those two kind of ingredients we then have, you know, the perfect storm for developing an eating disorder. You know, other psychological factors might include, you know, perfectionism. A lot of research is showing that having a perfectionistic tendency, you know, these um, unrealistic expectations of ourselves, you know, fear of making mistakes, that also puts us at risk of having an eating disorder. Um, and then there's the social elements, which you would have spoken to Phil or her about around, you know, weight stigma um, and the effects that that has on creating body dissatisfaction. And then we have this flow and effect of then having a greater risk of an eating disorder, you know, teasing and bullying. Um, and one that kind of, you know, is less discussed around, I think, uh, within the general public, but things around trauma and how traumatic um, events can actually render you vulnerable to developing an eating disorder. And anecdotally, you know, when I was working on the inpatient ward and and, uh, in an outpatient setting, many, you know, clients would come with a a trauma history. And, you know, the eating disorder, if we think about um, someone's kind of mental health concerns as a pie, the eating disorder might take up, you know, 25%, but then they're also dealing with other comorbidities such as anxiety, depression, a trauma history. And it can be really difficult to disentangle, you know, what's the priority for that person and, and what do we treat first? And, you know, on the, on the ward, we would see, particularly for uh, patients that were suffering from anorexia, when you're going through the refeeding stages and, you know, their brain is starting to, you know, come back to its, you know, kind of normal energy, it's, they're starting to relive some of those experiences. And that can be a really um, distressing time for clients to work through that with them so yeah there's it is very complicated and it's not as simple to say you know what is the causes and what's the links but it's really identifying that 
we are humans, we don't live in a vacuum and that there are a number of different factors, biological, psychological and societal that impact us and may render us more vulnerable to developing an eating disorder. Yeah, completely. And I think that there's so much in there already. And it's so interesting, like you kind of want to like dive into all of it. And I just think that thing about the refeeding, it's like something I know I can relate to in terms of just you start feeling emotion again. I think restrictive eating can really suppress emotion. It's that illusion of control. Um, You don't really feel anything. Everything's like kind of like this like numb, like, but fairly stable. And then on that refeeding process, you're suddenly like, oh, hell, <laughs> like this is, um, everything feels mad and chaotic and, and out of control just because you're, you're, you just start feeling again. But Em, I wonder if um, you could talk a little bit more about what it was like working in the eating disorder unit and like working in inpatient and if there were like any standout moments or things that surprised you from that experience. Yeah, I, it's really funny because I think that the common misconception or when you know, trainee therapists are preparing themselves to go onto an eating disorder ward, you know, the automatic reaction is like, am I going to um, be shocked by someone who is underweight or, you know, because that is the stereotype, right? That the person who is in an inpatient setting is, is very thin. They are, are very unwell. And once I got onto the, the ward, that wasn't that that thought didn't even cross my mind and the thing the reality is when you're working with clients their eating disorder is the least remarkable aspect of them you know when it comes to their families and their friends their eating disorder is what tends to set them apart from other people right and the eating disorder can become entrenched in their identity but when you're working with them as a clinician, it's like, yeah, I'm working with you. I'm working with, you know, Sharon down the hall. Like I'm working with so many different people and they have similar, um, you know, concerns. But what I really loved focusing on was, you know, who they were as individuals and how this eating disorder was impacting their lives. And, you know, also how their eating disorder was preventing them from engaging in those, you know, passions and having fulfilling relationships. So that to me is what stands out is, yes, the eating disorder is so important and we do need to treat it in order for you to, you know, move forward with your life journey. But it's also not the most remarkable part of you. And that can be really quite shocking for clients to hear because, they're, you know, that might not be the normal reception that they get. Um, but yeah, that is something that continues to stand out to me is really, um, kind of detaching the eating disorder from the person and, and, you know, showing that it's not them, their eating disorder is not, is not who they are. It is something that they're experiencing. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's, it's really interesting to hear from your perspective. I mean, as you both know, I spent long periods on eating disorder units and I've been recovered for years now but it's still like you feel like people can see through you and I think when you're like living on a ward you feel like there is nothing that goes unseen and I think it's it's very easy to get stuck in a a thought that you're always being judged for your eating disorder so then when you hear that people are working in such a way where they're thinking of who you are as a person outside of the eating disorder it's just really heartwarming and you know I hope it happens universally in eating disorder treatment settings um and I think that that is unfortunately 
true in the sense that not all clinicians, and, and I'm not talking just about psychologists who are working with eating disorders because it is usually a multidisciplinary team who are, you know, helping the client through their journey. Um, and unfortunately, not all disciplines are trained in empathy or that is not necessarily a natural trait that people possess. And that to me is just going to make the process a whole lot harder, both for you as the practitioner, for the individual with the eating disorder, and also, you know, their supports around them. I'm not saying that, you know, it's all, you know, rainbows and unicorns. It's not, you know, always fluffy. There are some really difficult times. And one thing that my clinician, um, clinical kind of mentor, uh, Glenn Waller, who is also a leading expert in eating disorders based at the University of Sheffield, he, you know, discusses firm empathy. And I really love this concept because it's understanding that together we are a team and we are working towards a common goal. But in order to achieve that goal, there has to be this shared level of respect and responsibility coming from both sides of the, the fence. And, you know, he said to me once that I was always trying to really push my clients to achieve their goals. And he said, Emily, have you looked up uh, in the medical journal, um, have you read the contagious section? And I was like, the what? And he was like, yeah, there's a, you know, can contagious diseases in the medical dictionary. And I was, you know, looking at him like, where is this going? And he said, you'll find that motivation does not fall under the category of contagious infectious diseases. And I was like, okay. And he said, your client needs to be motivated to change and you can be their cheerleader, but it's them who is running the race. And so that's where that kind of shared responsibility and respect really comes into it. It's like, we are going to be on this journey together, but it's you who is going to win this race. I can support you and, and, and help you through and provide you with the tools, but it's ultimately you who is going to win it. And I think that's also really important. Um, but unfortunately, that's not always the mindset that clinicians apply to their treatment styles. Wow, that's so interesting. Because also, I think it's very there must be a reclamation in the way that you seem to practice of kind of giving someone back their identity and going like it's you know there's a reclamation of self there especially in terms of saying it's going to be you to win this race and mm. I mean it's so interesting hearing you talk about that as someone I've, I've never personally experienced an eating disorder but I have been in therapy for a long time mm. and I always kind of had never really questioned the fact that my therapist would always be very clear to say, no, but you've done the work. It was you mm. who did that. I was here to help and support, but it was you. And I think it's so important to hear that. It's so important yeah. to know that it, I mean, it's empowering, especially if you've had, you've been dealing with something that has made you feel out of control. I think mm. to give someone the control back in a healthy way and go like, no, no, mm. this is you. Yeah. That's really beautiful. And Glenn would yeah. say, there's 168 hours in a week. You're with me for one of them. You are your own therapist for 167 hours of that week. And, you know, for example, if you, and I'm throwing the, you know, the analogies out here, but if you went to a doctor and you had tonsillitis and he prescribed you antibiotics, you wouldn't expect to get over the tonsillitis if you only took half of the treatment. So it's also, you know, really educating the client around we, the way you're living right now is, is 
unhelpful. You're not getting your full potential. We can't keep going like this. Um, and so there's that shared understanding, but in order for you to get over that hump, you need to commit to the treatment. And I know that's, you know, simplifying it, um, down to its, you know, essence, but that's what it is. In order to overcome this illness, you need to engage in the treatment to its completion. Um, and if you don't engage with it, then we aren't going to reach that, that overarching goal. Yeah, just so important. And then just the other thing I wanted to pick up in terms of you've come to it a couple of times in terms of how eating disorders hold people back from their potential. I think that's and and hold them back from like just living their lives. And I think that's very obvious and apparent when you are in inpatient treatment. So you're literally like in hospital, you're not living your your full uh, your full life in that way, because you're not carrying on as, as normal. But I think we see like across the spectrum of eating disorders, across the severity from that kind of clinical threshold, to people who are engaging in disordered eating, which might not reach that clinical threshold, but are still really taking up a lot of their headspace and time and energy. And, and so still, you want to push people through that to kind of really have that positive healthy relationship with food and themselves more broadly Mm. well as a community and a society we're losing out on so much by individuals I mean economically that is even you know a topic in and of itself the costs of of treating people with eating disorders but you know just on a humanistic level we are missing out on having these individuals gauging for foot like you know, with life. And so, you know, on an individual level, their families miss out, their partners miss out, and they miss out on on all those interactions. So that's why I think it's so important to remember is by removing this person society from society, what do we lose? And that to me is a greater cost than any economical um, evaluation of eating disorders. Yeah, totally. And but just on that economic note, I mean, it's from a couple of years ago, I think it was 2015. But with the UK Eden Solar Charity Beat, they did a cost analysis or via PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers. Um, and they estimated the annual cost of eating disorders in the UK at 15 billion as a cost to society. So it's huge. And so within the calculation is cost of treatment. But then also you have to think how um the cost impacts then that person is then out of work it could be if um families are involved in full-time care and then the cost that way and then it just adds up adds up adds up um so it's huge you know although we can think when people have eating disorders it's still a small percentage of people in the population the repercussions are so huge and then when we get out of that like very small clinical threshold for eating disorders and we look at disordered eating it's I mean disordered eating is so common like so the the impact and the repercussions are huge and probably extend beyond that PwC report for beat no I completely agree with you and I think it's easier for people to understand the magnitude when you put it down to numbers yes it kind of contradicts what I've been saying about you know recognizing the human humanistic aspect of it but really when you when you bring it down to the numbers, it's incomprehensible. And that's when, you know, we need, um, you know, governments and people in power to recognise the impact that this illness has on society, uh, that we need those people in power to really bring it to, to light because that's another problem that we're having is that eating disorders, whilst they are, you know, so 
need to be taken seriously, they're not um, everywhere as much as they should be. So that's another thing we you know, are constantly advocating for. Yeah, that's in terms of like government investment for research and treatment or money going towards eating disorder prevention or treatment is far less than other mental health disorders. So ooh, it's, it's a lot. There's a lot to be done. Um, so, of course, I'm sure you're aware of this, but there's been um, reports of an increase in eating disorders during lockdown. Why, why do you think that is? Well, I'm not surprised. Uh, firstly, because eating disorders thrive in isolation, which is a key feature of COVID. We're in lockdown. Many countries have been, you know, since mid-March. And there is also the concern that we might go into another form of lockdown. So, you know, globally, every individual is experiencing a heightened level of stress, anxiety, sadness. And then we, you know, confine those emotions to four walls. And so some people might be experiencing lockdown on their own, so without any other individuals in their space. They might be experiencing it with a partner or they might be in a family unit. And those three different dynamics might present different issues. So if you're on your own, you don't have any kind of accountability. There is no one to bounce your thoughts or your behaviours off of. Equally, if you are living with a partner or with family members, you know, during a really tumultuous time, there is going to be heightened emotions, greater risk for kind of in-family fighting. And so, you know, we have this cycle of difficult emotions that people who are living with an eating disorder might lean on some of their eating disorder behaviors to find comfort or to gain back control. So, you know, in the case of maybe binging and purging, that might, you know, binging might be used as a means to, you know, regulate some of those really distressing emotions that people would be experiencing. And then, or alternatively, someone might, you know, engage in a lot of, a, a lot more restriction as a means to gain that control that they feel they've lost during this, this very uncontrollable time. So we're almost in this perfect storm where we have, in the case of those with an eating disorder, there are a number of you know ingredients that are contributing to the eating disorder perhaps worsening, but there also are going to be groups of individuals who don't yet meet the criteria of an eating disorder, who are at increased risk, and this lockdown might have been the you know the moment that pushed them to the next uh, level of developing an eating disorder. And there's a number of reasons as to why that um, could be the case. So the ones that I've already spoken about, but, you know, during lockdown, we didn't have a lot to preoccupy our minds with, you know, there was a lot of focus on what we were doing with our bodies, whether that was eating or how we were moving and people were limited in what they could do. And naturally our bodies were going to respond to the situation we were in there you know was likely going to be you know unexpected weight gain from lack of movement you know people were going to lean on emotional eating and also if you think if you're around friends and family that's a social element food could have actually been you know something positive for people to do but may have ultimately contributed to weight gain and then we have you know our mobile phones, 
the, the gateway to entertainment during lockdown. And unfortunately, there are a lot of messages that were being perpetuated that gave me and I know Nadia a visceral reaction around weight shaming. Uh, there was the COVID-15, I think they called it, uh, where you were going yeah. to enter um, lockdown in one body, which was portrayed as a thin appearance and then exit it in a larger body. And so again, we, we had this environment that was really a perfect storm for either creating more vulnerability or exacerbating uh, behaviors among those who are already suffering from an eating disorder. And so, yeah, it's, it's by no means surprising to me that those rates are increasing and you know, it's been six months now and there has been an emergence of research that has looked at the eating behaviours of those at risk as well as those experiencing experiencing an eating disorder. And I think we're just going to continue to find out more about this period of time, but also I don't see it as being surprising. You know, it's the research is telling us what we already know about eating disorders when there is a lack of support around individuals to help them through it. It's very interesting knowing, and I guess it does make sense. It's like you said, I mean, I think, a com- a, like you said, of all of the three factors that you talked about of kind of the psychological, the social, all of those things come into play during this. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, we are essentially in our own little isolated prisons reading mm-hmm. all of mm-hmm. the same toxic shit that we've been reading before. <laughs> Yeah. Only this time we don't have friends to be like, God, that's shitty, isn't it? It's like, you're on your own with this. It's so much for people to deal with. I think the other thing as well, I think because with all of that pressure to restrict as well, the other thing where we have that pendulum swing of like you, like when you're restricting and then swinging to the binging and that how that then causes anxiety and leads to the swing back to restricting again. And I think that pattern through lockdown was exacerbated as well, I feel because of all like the fear around weight gain so people trying to compensate from that fear so saw like a lot of like compensation type behaviors but then restriction is very difficult <laughs> to sustain so so then that kind of exacerbates all of those feelings I think as well yeah and I mean all over social media I mean I am a very big advocate for monitoring your social media and and making sure that you know, as Honey put it beautifully, none of that shit filters into, you know, our feeds and and it doesn't perpetuate or, um, you know, feed into some of those unhelpful thinkings and uh, thinking and behaviours. Um, but, you know, I was, it was all about virtual workouts and, you know, making sure that you're not, um, you know, also I guess the other thing was there was a lot of anxiety around um, panic buying. And food scarcity. Yeah. So also, you know, there was fear mongering from the media around there's not going to be much food, like we need to buy now. And, you know, also with eating disorders, there is fear around certain foods and, you know, not to be able to buy what you feel comfortable eating. Of course, that is going to increase our anxiety. So social media is often the devil and can, you know, really perpetuate those concerns. And unfortunately, when we don't have the, our normal routine of going to work, going to school, seeing our friends, you know, we were very much relying on that as a form of entertainment and also news. And unfortunately, when it comes to, you know, diet culture, it's all fake news and yeah, is not at all informative or helpful during these periods. I feel like on this podcast, we've said so many times as well, 
with social media the most important thing to do is kind of unfollow all of those accounts that really do not spark joy which are really giving you negative messaging and even if it's a friend mute them you know Mm. they don't need to know you can save their feelings and save yourself at the same time and everybody wins in that outcome because even you know I follow such a kind of I I have one would imagine such a body positive safe Instagram feed and even I was being bombarded with body related nonsense and weight loss ads and I was just always reporting them as inappropriate because I was like I don't need to see this I don't want to see this right now but you know everybody's experiencing it and sometimes even that content you know that positive body image content can also be unhelpful sometimes when we are constantly focusing again on the body and and I think there is always that a time and place for those discussions but sometimes you just don't want to open your phone and it be about your body or it be about your food and you know sometimes it, it's a matter of disengaging from those from that content mm. completely and, and drawing a line yeah. for a little bit especially if you you recognize yourself you're in a vulnerable position or or period of your life just the topic in general sometimes is not helpful to discuss and that's something that I'm really passionate about as well is that you know yes it's important to discuss you know the positive aspects of our body its functionality mm. and and being appreciative but we also don't always need our bodies and what we consume and digest to be at the forefront of our discussions, you know. Is this a good segue into our eating disorder myths? And yeah, a bit of debunking because there are um, a number of common eating disorder stereotypes that kind of get all our backs up in certain ways. But I wonder, Emily, if you could help us debunk them with a little bit of the you know, from that clinical psychology perspective and your all of your experience put together. I feel like we need a buzzer that's like, eh, wrong. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that would be great. Okay, so I'll start. So eating disorders only affect middle-class white teenage girls. Hmm. Wrong. So <laughs> this is a common stereotype and... I'm going to come to the reasons why this stereotype has been perpetuated and why it is quite difficult to change. But just up front, the reality is that eating disorders affect anyone and they, irrespective of their ethnicity, their race, their age, their gender, their sexual orientation, you know, anyone can be at risk of an eating disorder. There are going to be those biological, psychological, and social factors that render them more vulnerable. Um, but you cannot assume that it's only white women who are susceptible to developing eating disorders. Also, this stereotype has detrimental implications for people reaching out for help if they don't see themselves reflected in eating disorder treatment or services they're not going to engage with those services so we already know that there are you know people with eating disorders are less likely to seek help but if they are also within underrepresented groups they are even less likely to engage with services so in terms of this stereotype I kind of see two areas that they are perpetuated. So firstly, within the general public, when we discuss eating disorders, they are, you know, that might be in media, in film, television, 
the poster child of an eating disorder is a white girl from a private school. And, you know, this is so unhelpful because that is not the case. And also sometimes eating disorders can be glamorized. That's another issue I have within media and film that they're somehow this exotic thing to experience. And again, this is the stereotype that uh, media perpetuates because usually they're also living this lavish, rich lifestyle. Um, the other domain that this stereotype can be perpetuated in is our own Nadia research. You know, we we will only find an issue if we're looking in one place. It doesn't mean the issue isn't occurring elsewhere. So because research has predominantly looked at um you know, university populations when it comes to eating disorders, 17 to 25 year olds, and it's a university population. There are only certain people that have the privilege of entering a tertiary education, and that is usually white middle-class individuals. So of course, if you're applying your research to those convenient samples that researchers have access to, then that's when you're going to find, you know, an eating disorder applied to that person. It's not all doom and gloom. There is work being done in underrepresented underrepresented groups but you know as we've said a couple of times in this podcast there is much more work to be done and the research shows that those underrepresented groups eating disorders have higher prevalence for example transgender individuals so you know we have these groups who aren't well researched and they're the ones who are actually at greater risk uh, and those who aren't engaging in services and who we need to be you know accessing and providing that support to. Sorry to take a sidebar from debunking, but this is something I am genuinely curious about. Mm -hmm. Do you think there is any responsible way or a safe way to portray eating disorders in the media, in film and television? Do you think there's, you know, do you think it should be something that's looked into or do you think it's more damaging than it is positive? It's, it's a really good question. And to be honest, I don't have a firm, hard and fast answer, but yeah. we at Dove have actually been doing this. So Philippa was consulting on some research using um, Girls Room, which was a short uh, television series that was hosted on um, several social media platforms and was written uh, by Lena Waithe. And she, again, it was this entertainment, it was the coming together of entertainment and intervention content. And mm. Philippa was consulting on the portrayal of, you know, eating behaviors, body talk, and how that would actually realistically look. Because, you know, there is reality in how eating disorders play out. And then there's the way that, you know, media, television, film portray it. And so, I am a big believer of, you know, the sharing of different minds and that's where we see different industries of entertainment and education coming together and in research we call it edutainment and so it's informative entertainment that is beneficial to the consumer. And we've also been looking at this, this is very much a side um, kind of angle, we've been doing this with kids and inserting educational content about body image into um, children's animations. And we've found that there are positive effects by exposing uh, children and young people to entertainment content that addresses risk factors for body image. So yes, my hard and fast answer is that we can do it, 
but we can't, it can't just come from the entertainment business. We, we need it to be informative and evidence-based and we as researchers are not in the entertainment business. We are not, yeah, no one wants to hear what we have to say in the, in the way of, you know, glamour. And so it's coming together of great minds in order to create effective material. Okay, thank you. That's very interesting. No, I think it has to be a collaboration if it's done responsibly. That's very interesting. Anyway, back to debunking. (laughs) Okay, here's a very common one. The most common eating disorder is anorexia. Wrong again. Um, So anorexia is actually the least common eating disorder amongst the group of eating disorders. When people discuss eating disorders, they usually refer to anorexia, bulimia, more recently binge eating disorder, but there are a number of other eating disorders that people might meet criteria for. Um, so, you know, but I don't feel like they are as general knowledge to the public uh, as they are to say us in a research or clinical setting. So other eating disorders include avoidant restrictive food intake, which is ARFID. And this is an emerging um, eating disorder that's been looked at predominantly among children and it's a sensory-based avoidance of food. So people are engaging in dietary restriction due to the discomfort that they might experience in eating certain foods. Um, Then we have another subset of eating disorders, which is other specified feeding or eating disorders called OSFED. Um, And there's four that fall under that category. So there's atypical anorexia and I'm not overly a big fan of that wording but we we move forward um bulimia nervosa of low frequency or limited duration binge eating disorder of low uh, frequency or limited duration and then night eating syndrome and so you know eating disorders are much more complex than just having anorexia or bulimia and then we spoke previously about kind of that sub threshold so there are people who don't quite meet the criteria of a clinical eating disorder, but still, you know, would be engaging in disordered eating behaviors, which would negatively impact their life as well. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Em. And I think the other thing, kind of going back to the how these myths are perpetuated, I think research is another big culprit of perpetuating that anorexia is so big within all the eating disorders because so much work is focused on anorexia disproportionately to some of the other eating disorders as well. So Oh, why do you think also, that is? Good question, Emily. <laughs> we can tag team on this, Nadia. Um, I, in terms of the severity, the biological severity of anorexia, there. This is this is again my own opinion. Why I believe this to be, um, but there is the biological severity of anorexia that is not necessarily associated with the other eating disorders. That's not to say that there isn't harm that is experienced by the body, you know, with binging and purging, laxative use, etc. But there are those acute biological issues that an individual with anorexia will face. Also in terms of the fluctuation of their weight and um, starvation syndrome, which is to the point where their body starts to shut down because of the depletion of nutrients. And so it's more around the acuteness of the disorder and the um, physiological issues, um, but that does not negate the fact that other eating disorders also experience, um, you know, biological issues and severity. So 
That's my thought. <laughs> Perfect. I mean, I I think it's a hard question to answer. My immediate thought goes back to the first kind of writings about eating disorders and women with hysteria and that kind of very Freudian, like, you've got this like woman in distress who, like, doesn't eat. But it just becomes this point of fascination. I think the combination of the two, I think, is where it's, you've just got this disproportionate balance. And I think where it's come from that medical field as well. And that belief system also infiltrates the patient where, you know, their how severe they think their eating disorder is, is based off of medicalization. So it's just like, if I'm not hospitalized, I'm not that sick. And okay, I need to reach a weight threshold of 18.5 in order to be discharged. You know, if I reach that threshold, then I'm not sick anymore. I'm not suitable to be here. So again, it's, it's really medicalizing the the disorder rather than looking at the person and kind of that biopsychosocial model of where are they experiencing um distress and and dysfunction as well so but unfortunately those belief systems filter down from you know clinician to patient and also kind of other people's general perceptions of eating disorders should we do one more um so you can tell by looking at someone if they've got an eating disorder I mean, eating disorder or not, you should never, and I repeat, never make an assumption about someone's health based on their appearance. That is physical or or mental health. Um, You know, I spoke to some of those diagnoses before around, you know, anorexia, the stereotype is, is thinness. And, and yet we have atypical anorexia where it may, the, the individual will meet all the other criteria of anorexia, so fear of weight gain, um, restrictive eating, and weight loss, but it's just that that individual falls within either a normal or overweight or obese um, weight category based on BMI. So, you know, there are eating disorders are so much more complex than that. And also they can be an an invisible disorder where, you know, we're thinking about a lot of the attitudes and the thought process that, that occur that no one can see. And so my short answer to that is never assume what someone is experiencing based off of their appearance. Um, but just more broadly, never assume about what someone is experiencing um, because more often than not, you can't actually see it. And, you know, as maybe a friend or a family member, if you you do start to see behaviours or, you know, engage in conversations with that person that might reflect what you know worry of an eating disorder then engage in that conversation with them in an open format but not accusatory and you know I think that's also really important is if you are suspective that someone is at risk of developing an eating disorder or is already kind of on their way then having an open discussion about that. And there are a number of resources that help can help friends and family engage in those conversations. But again, it's about, you know, you never make assumptions. It's it's not a good way to start a conversation. So, Emily, I know we're, we're getting towards the end of our time, but I don't want to let you go without talking a little bit about thinking styles. Emily is our go-to person for talking about CBT and talking about thinking styles and thinking styles particularly related to to body image and to to eating disorders specifically. And 
Emily, I wonder if you could just share a couple of like the common thinking styles and how we can kind of break out of them. So the ones that are unhelpful related to disordered eating. My favorite saying in the team that has been reflected back to me is facts, not feelings. And so I think it's really important to when we are having perhaps unhelpful thoughts to you know look at all perspectives. Um, but firstly, we all engage in self-talk. It's the conversations we have with ourselves. Sometimes that can be, you know, in our brain. Other times we can say it out loud. I certainly talk to myself, you know, out loud a lot. Um, but the thing that I love about self-talk is we can be in control of it. We, I see it as a radio that we can turn down the volume of some of those thoughts when they're particularly distressing, or we can simply change the channel and, you know, have a different conversation with ourselves. And that might be through distraction, calling a friend, um, going for a walk. So there are, you know, our brain is a beautiful, wonderful thing. It allows us to process millions of pieces of information every single day. But in order to do that, we have to create shortcuts and we have, you know, unfortunately our brain is susceptible to bias and sometimes we interpret information that might be incorrect or unhelpful and that then ultimately impacts our perceptions of ourselves, our perceptions of others and the, you know, the world more broadly. So I really want to stress that these thought processes can occur in anyone, but there are eating disorder um, specific thought processes that might exacerbate eating behaviors um, specifically. So firstly, there is black and white thinking where we tend to think about situations in extremes. They're either right, they're wrong, they're good, they're bad, I'm perfect, I'm a failure. And there's no kind of gray area or other kind of perception that we can take. An example might be you set the day out with a very clear diet plan. I'm going to have my, you know, muesli bar in the morning. I'm going to have several cups of coffee. I'm not going to have lunch. I'll have a late, you know, maybe a late early morning, early dinner and I get home after a really busy day where I've exerted a lot of energy, where my body is really needing some nutrients and an energy boost. And I might see a packet of biscuits sitting on the table and my brain will go, do not eat the biscuits, do not eat the biscuits. And I ultimately cave because my body is needing, you know, nourishment and energy. I have one biscuit. I then consume the whole packet because I go, well, if I'm going to have one biscuit, I might as well have the whole thing. So that black and white thinking is either or. I either eat the biscuit or I don't eat the biscuit. And there are so many other perspectives that we could have taken. You know, we could have gone, I'm really hungry and I need to put more food into my body than I've had today. I might have a biscuit now. I might have two. I'm going to go away, unpack my bag for the day, get ready for the night, come back, make dinner. I might then have a couple of other biscuits um, and, you know, I might have dinner, sit down and watch a movie and I might, you know, eat the rest of the packet. So there is more of a gradient approach rather than it being an all or nothing perspective. And we find that's really common, particularly in eating behaviors um, where we apply rules to ourselves, and the more the stricter the rules the more likely we are going to break them and then we have that idea of I'm a failure I could not 
you know, diet perfectly, for example. So that's one of the very common ones. Yeah, that's, it's great. And I think, honey, it always com- it comes back to what you say quite a lot in terms of, what's the phrasing that you use that you're not in control of your... Wait, what you're not you a passenger. You're not yeah, a passenger but, yeah. to your thoughts. Yeah, I think, I, you know, I'm a PTSD sufferer, survivor, whatever, but um, it, you have to be aware of the fact that it's like, this isn't, this isn't right. Your brain is telling you mean things to make you feel stressed and yeah. sad and you're in control of that. You know, it's, it, it takes time and it's scary to... Oh God, I think I saw a meme of it being like, so no one was going to tell me that my brain was just telling me mean lies my whole life. And it's like, no, well, yeah, it was. I'm really sorry. But it's like, now we're just going to work on fixing that. You know, mm-hmm. that's all we can do moving forward. And externalizing that voice as well. You know, that is my eating disorder telling me not to eat the bagel. It is not me telling myself yeah. not to eat the bagel. So, you know, by also the the words can seem very punitive when we have them just in our brain. But when we actually vocalize them, they lose its power. And there is a a therapeutic approach um, in acceptance and commitment therapy where you actually play around with saying um, some of those negative thoughts. So it might be, I'm fat. And you might be like, I'm fat. Like it's just, and you start to play with this, (laughs) this phrase and it starts to lose its power because it's like, this is the thought that has been trapped in my mind that has been playing on repeat at the highest volume in my radio. And I just cannot turn it down. But when you remove it from, you know, the brain space, I guess, and put it out to the universe, it actually, you start to have fun with it and it actually loses its meaning. Um, so that's also another um, technique I would encourage people is have a bit of fun with the mean things that you're saying to yourself and, yeah. you know, externalize them from your brain and, you know, detach them from yourself. Yeah, that's, I, that's great. I didn't know that. Um, I haven't heard that acceptance and commitment therapy technique. So that's great. And what I would say, again, is using the perspective of someone who's had an eating disorder, I used to find that really difficult to, to separate eating disorder and me to say like, oh, that's my eating disorder saying this and this is what I think or whatever. Um, so that it, it will or can feel difficult at first. And it is just something that you are like, okay, no, I'm going to really try and stick with it. If you're going to change your thinking style, it's not going to happen overnight. It's again, one of those things that you just really need to practice. It's not going to feel comfortable overnight. Again, something that you need to practice. I was going to say, I think, and you're talking about verbalizing things. I think it's so important to have a dialogue with yourself. And, Mm. you know, like you said, you can change everyone has that radio channel of self-talk and sometimes again putting out a positive you know I've started like sometimes if I'm having a tender moment alone you know just like made myself a cup of tea I'm like I love you you know tell yourself that you love yourself you know verbalize it or also if you have a negative thought sometimes Mm. I will literally say out loud no no I think that's my anxiety I don't think that's actually how I feel and I think it's so you know you feel a bit strange doing it at first but once you adjust to it the quality of life goes up so much. It gets so much better. 
<laughs> and if you can have a laugh with yourself during the moment as well, yeah. like sometimes these topics are so emotive and sensitive and vulnerable that if you can have a play around with it, it actually, and poke fun at the eating disorder. You know, I am a believer that humor cures all. Like if you can find the the kind of humor in these difficult situations, then that is amazing. But also recognizing that there are going to be some techniques that you try that just don't work for you. And that's completely fine as well. Um, Before we let you go, um, we usually like to end by, you know, a a little bit of personal wholesome advice that's helped you through, you know, it could be something you like to do for self-care or just something that was, you know, a really helpful thing you found on your journey of body acceptance. I mean, I'm a a big cheese ball at heart, I think. Um, This is going to sound so cliche, but... I will expand on the comment so it doesn't sound so cheesy. But if you're listening to this podcast and perhaps experiencing an eating disorder or think you might be on a journey leading down that path or you might be someone who has a loved one that is currently um, experiencing an eating disorder, my comment to you is that you're not alone. And that sounds cliche and and sometimes empty, but what I really want to emphasize is that there are millions of people around the world who are investing their time and money into better understanding what eating disorders are and how to treat them. And so when when your eating disorder is telling you that you're worthless or that no one cares and you are in the deep despairs of the eating disorder, know that there are other people with lived experience, there are volunteers, there are charities, there are industries, researchers, clinicians, policymakers who spend their time empowering other people to through this journey. And that's what I want people to remember is they are not alone in this in this fight and that your eating disorder is going to convince you every single day that you are and it's just not true and that there are people in the UK, Australia, India, Brazil, Indonesia, you know, Spain that are trying to find the answer and we don't have the answer yet um, but we're really working on it and just hang in there with us and, yeah, we are going to fight this fight is what I have to say. That's a lovely note to end on. Thank you so much, Emily. Um, Emily, where, where can we find you? Yes. So I'm somewhat new to Instagram, but have my uh, own account there, which is emily.l.matheson, where I predominantly focus on um, body image, eating disorders and sports. So there's some uh, tools there and, and sharing some research. Um, so yeah, come and, come and follow me and, and learn a bit as well. Gorgeous. Emily, thank you so much. No worries. Thank you, ladies. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Body Protest Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. It would mean the world to us if you could subscribe, rate and review. You can follow Honey on Instagram at HoneyKinney. And you can follow Nadia at Nadia.Craddock. This podcast is edited by the angels at Project Harness, Daisy and Rasheen. And brought to you by the Pink Protest Podcast Network.